Good morning, Woodland Hills Church. It's great to be with the church and the people of God this morning. It's a privilege to uh, be here and to serve with you, and I welcome you to worship this morning as we enter into the teaching time. I want to talk this morning about something entitled Descending into Greatness. Descending into Greatness. Now, you wouldn't think that a story like this would begin with a stolen bicycle, but that's actually where it begins. Because uh, back in 1954 in Louisville, Kentucky, there was a 12-year-old boy who went to an auditorium for a, a major event, Columbia Auditorium, and while he was inside the auditorium, somebody stole his bike. And this little boy was unhappy about this, and he went back to the auditorium, and he found a cop, a fellow named Joe Martin. And he said to Joe, filled with rage, somebody stole my bike, and I'm going to whoop him. And Joe wisely said, you had better learn to box first. And so within a couple of weeks, this little boy, all 89 pounds of him, was in the gym learning how to box. And very shortly after that, he had his first bout and his first win. For the next 27 years, this little boy lived in the boxing room. He would go to the ring day after day. And even in his youth, he had dreams that someday he would be the heavyweight champion of the world. His life took turns that no one could have predicted. But he dedicated himself to boxing with a fervor that few other young boxers possessed. Indeed, this was the only thing he did. As a teenager, he never got a job. He just trained and he boxed. He boxed and he trained. This is all he did. He had 108 amateur bouts. According to this Joe Martin, who knows about these things, this boy set himself apart from all the other boys who were learning to box by two things. First of all, he had an attitude. He was sassy. And secondly, he outworked everyone. He worked harder than anyone else who had picked this as his sport. And all that hard work paid off because he won six Kentucky State Golden Glove Awards. And then he won two National Golden Glove Championships. And then he won two AAU national championships. And then, a couple of months after his 18th birthday, this young boy who got started boxing because somebody stole his bike went to the Olympics. Notice the contextual relevance here. Went to the Olympics, 1980, uh, 1960, in Rome, and he won a gold medal. It, wasn't shortly, it was shortly after that that uh, this young boy fought the fearsome Sonny Liston and upset Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the world. A few years after that, he went to the middle of Africa and fought and defeated Joe Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle. And later, one of the most famous bouts of all time, the Thrilla in Manila. Who makes up these guys concepts? Anyway, I don't know where they come with this stuff. The Thrilla in Manila, and he beat Joe Frazier. Overall, throughout his career, he had 56 wins and five defeats. You know who I'm talking about. The greatest, or certainly one of the greatest boxers of all time, a man named Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was well known for saying something about himself. He said, I am the greatest. And... When you're as great as I am, it's hard to be humble. 
And he proved his greatness by putting on these boxing gloves. Not these boxing gloves. I got these at Kmart. But, you know, <laughs> boxing gloves. And beating a tar out of people. He said, I'm the greatest. And he proved it by pummeling people and leaving them in a bloody heap. Now, of course, this is exactly what boxers are supposed to do. And Ali was one of the greatest. It's fascinating to watch him, his speed, his, his quickness, his strength. But unfortunately, Ali did not understand the true greatness that Jesus describes for us in the text that we're going to look at this morning. True greatness in Jesus' teaching is completely different. It's an upside-down kind of greatness. And we learn from this in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 28, the concept of upside-down greatness. What I'd like to talk about this morning has to do with descending into greatness. Now our story begins in verses 20 and 21 when two of Jesus' disciples, John and James, and their mother go to Jesus with a request. Here's what the text says. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. Now here we have a Jewish mother who is going to Jesus looking for a request. And what mother doesn't want her children to flourish? What mother doesn't want her children to succeed? It turns out that uh, in other gospels, when this story is told, James and John actually take the lead in asking Jesus this request. And so it seems like this is a conspiracy between the three of them. The three of them are going to Jesus and they're saying, we'd like to have some status. We'd like to have some perks. We'd like to have some benefits. We want to volunteer in this kingdom, but we're looking for the perks. We want to be a part of the kingdom. We want to lead. We want to serve. We want to be a part. We want to get on the team. But we'd like to be in this special place, this special place of privilege, right next to the main man. They had confused service with status. They had missed out on the principle that Jesus wants to teach about what true greatness amounts to. And so Jesus, in verse 22, says to them, you guys don't quite understand what serving in the kingdom of God is all about. He asks them this question. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup? that I am about to drink. We can, he said. And then Jesus says, well, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit from my right hand or on my left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Jesus says that if you're going to serve in the kingdom, there's going to be some suffering involved. There's going to be some commitment involved. It's not first and foremost about the benefits or the perks. It's interesting that these three disciples, or these two disciples, thought to themselves that they were probably tough enough to handle the suffering that Jesus was talking about. And of course, when he talks about drinking the cup, this rings a bell for you, doesn't it? Drinking the cup is a symbol, comes from the Old Testament. It, it crops up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it refers to Jesus' own experience of sacrificing himself on the cross uh, for our sins. So this idea of drinking the cup, then, is, a, is a, an image or a picture that has to do uh, with sacrifice and commitment. 
And he says to these two disciples, you guys are going to have to drink the cup too. Oh, we can do that, they said, naively. They had no clue what they were talking about, really. And of course, we know that within a couple of weeks, Jesus goes to the cross, and the disciples do what in the Garden of Gethsemane? Abandon ship. They just, they've run for the hills. They have no capacity to do what Jesus is talking about. Of course, on the other hand, it is encouraging that these disciples did, in the end, drink the cup that Jesus is talking about. In the long run, they were able to follow Jesus to the end. But at this point, they're too immature. The next thing that happens, of course, is that somebody else finds out about this. Somebody else finds out that these two disciples are looking for this special place. And, of course, scheming for perks, scheming for privileges, scheming for benefits, tends to break the team apart. And it's not surprising what happens in our story. Verse 24. When the ten hear about this, they are indignant with the two brothers. No surprise here. Have you ever been on a team where one person seems to be in it for himself? What does that do to the team? Everyone else says, well, then I'm going to be in it for myself too. And the team begins to break apart. I played ball when I was in high school, and uh, we had a great team when I was a sophomore. A lot of good players. We had lots of talent. We had lots of good players. I wasn't one of them. I sat on the bench and, you know, enjoyed a close view of the game. But our best player was about 6'6 and a center, and uh, he was just a fantastic player. Played in college. The interesting thing is I remember a number of times that when we were in huddles in close games and the coach was talking, our best player was looking up into the stands to see what his girlfriend was doing. And we're thinking, come on, man, get your head in the game here. He's more interested in his own issues, more interested in something else, not part of the team. And, of course, this is exactly what happens with the disciples. And if you look at the language carefully, what happens in, in this verse is that these two disciples actually go, I'm sorry, the ten disciples actually go after the two disciples. It's not just like, you know, you're making us feel bad that you want to be at the right hand and the left hand. It's not like that. It's not like a sort of mild discomfort. The Greek language here suggests that they pulled out their claws. They turned on these two. They were just savage in going after these two disciples. I mean, this event caused serious friction on Jesus' team. You know, this whole idea of looking for the perks, this idea of scheming for benefits, is so common in our world, isn't it? Jesus says that himself, verse 25. Jesus calls them together. We've got to have a team meeting here, he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now these two phrases in here, lording it over and exercising authority, this is not a healthy, appropriate kind of leadership. The kind of leadership that Jesus is talking about here is the kind of leadership where people are holding other people under their thumb. The supervisors in this situation are taking it out on their, on their, on their uh, men, on their women, on their people. The, the, the supervisors in this situation are, are being inappropriate. They're, they're uh, being unhealthy, and they're dominating and squeezing the people under them. Jesus says, this is so common. You know this is common. 
And of course, we do too. We look around in our world around us, and we find people who, who act in this way, who are looking for themselves. It was about a decade ago that the United Way had an incredible scandal. It was every bit as wrong as Enron and some of the other things that have been in the news. The person's name was William Aramoni, and he was the president of the United Way. Now, if you think about the United Way, this is an organization that's committed to giving and serving, right? Such a great organization that you and I had money taken out of our paycheck to, to help them, right? I did. And found out that the president, now this goes back a few years, and they fixed it, so you can give to the United Way. It's all right to do that now. But 10 years ago, they had this huge scandal. The president was using the money that came from my paycheck to fund his trips to the Caribbean. He was later convicted of stealing over a million dollars for personal privileges. Now, this happens constantly and almost doesn't surprise us, right? We read the news, we read the papers, we see this stuff happening all the time. Jesus says, you know this. This is what happens all the time. This is normal operating procedure, right? And at this point, we come to the climax of the story. Jesus has laid out the reality that in the world, among the Gentiles, there are going to be leaders who will dominate, who will oppress. There will be leaders who will skim all the privileges for themselves. But then he utters, Jesus utters four key words. Verse 26, he says, while in the world among the Gentiles, you will find people who dominate and control and oppress. Verse 26, not so with you. Not so with you. This doesn't happen with you. This is a different arrangement. The kingdom of God is a different situation. We have leaders, but leaders do not oppress. Leaders serve. Not so with you, says Jesus, verse 26. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You see, Jesus reverses the pattern. Not so with you, says Jesus. It's a different kind of greatness. It's a kind of greatness where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if you want to lead and serve, then you do so by giving. You don't focus on receiving the perks. This is much like what JFK said to our nation many years ago. Do not ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And this is the heart of service in the kingdom. It's a different kind of greatness, but it is a greatness nonetheless. Now, I think if we were to do a little theology quiz right now and pass out quizzes to all of you and give everybody pencils, and we asked a question, what kind of greatness should you choose? I think everybody here would we'd be able to choose the right kind of thing, right? Wouldn't we be able to get this right on a theology quiz? I think so. Now, where the rubber hits the road, however, is practically within our life together, how does this principle work itself out? And to get a handle on this, I'd like to show you a sort of simplified organizational chart of Woodland Hills Church. Okay? Now, I want to get practical. I want to show you how this actually works itself out in the, in the organization, in the life uh, of this community. You see... In an organizational chart, the people who are on the top are the ones who are in charge, right? 
And the people who are in the bottom, they're the ones who serve the people on the top, right? That's how it's supposed to work. You all, you all know how this works, right? So at Woodland Hills Church, what you have is, of course, the lead pastor and your board of elders. I forget what you call it, but you know what I mean, church council. And they're at the top, right? And then underneath them, you have another very important group. This is all your pastoral staff. Uh, you know, people like Dwayne and, and everyone else. Is, and their job, of course, is to serve the lead pastor, right? You tracking with me here? Yeah? And then, of course, underneath the pastoral staff, you're going to have another group. They're all the assistants of various kinds and volunteers. And their work and the job, of course, is to make the pastoral staff look good, right? You tracking with me so far? And um, then there's one more group. Oh, yeah, the congregation. That would be you guys. So your guys, your job is to make all the rest of us look good, to serve us. And in my new church, this is how we're going to organize it. I think it's a great deal. I just can't wait to get started with this. I think it's going to be fantastic. You know what Jesus would say to this, don't you? You know what Jesus would say to this. What would Jesus say to this? Not so with you. Not so with you. This is the way the Gentiles would think, but not so with the people of God. Because in the people of God, there's a different system altogether, and it looks like this. The pastor's role is to serve those who, who report to him, the pastoral staff, to build into the lives of, of younger staff members and to give to these younger men and women. And their job is to love and help and nurture those who work with them. And, of course, at the top of the heap, you have the congregation. Your job is just to sit there and be served. <laughs> it's a wonderful plan. Are you tracking with me? Do you like this plan? What do you think Jesus would say to this one? Not so with you, people of God. No, because it's supposed to look like this. There is a needy world that you are placed here to serve and to love, to give of the resources that God has put into your life so that people who need Christ and need healing and need friendship and need a cup of cold water will receive this from you. Now, in putting this up this way and saying that the staff supports the congregation and the congregation serves the world, and putting the lead pastor at the bottom wrong here. I'm not saying that there should be no leadership. No, there should be leadership. Okay. It's not like that we're going to change the job description of the lead pastor so that his main job is to pick up your socks. No. The lead pastor is still supposed to lead, and the, the pastoral staff are supposed to lead their ministry areas, and, and there's still accountability, and, and they still have to get things done. But the key point is this. When you put the leaders at the bottom, they still lead. But they lead in such a way that they develop covenant relationships with their followers, and their followers are stronger for the, for the experience. They lead in such a way that those who follow are built up, that those who follow come closer to God, that those who follow find their gifts, that those who follow strengthen in their passion for Christ. 
So it is not the case that, that leaders stop leading. It is the case that they lead in such a way that those who follow are greater than they ever could have been without the leader's leadership. Let's think of a concrete example. Let's think of parenting. Now, parenting is kind of a leadership function, right? You're supposed to lead your children in the ways of righteousness. Now, if we were to put an organizational chart of the family up here, mom and dad would be at the bottom. The kids would be on top. So what does that mean? Does that mean parents no longer hold their kids accountable? Does that mean there are no expectations of the children? Does it mean that now the kids call the shots? Okay, the youth department is perking up here, I can see. No, that's not what it means. The parents still set the conditions of the, of the family. The parents still lead their children to follow Christ. But they do it in such a way that the children are built up. And here's the deal. The parents in such a relationship have to be so filled up with Christ that they don't need to gain their energy and life from the children. Because they are so filled up with Christ, because they are satisfied with the Lord, they are set free to give to the kids. And this is how leadership functions. This is how service functions in the kingdom of God. When leaders lead out of a full heart, they are free to give to those who follow so that those who follow may become all that God intended them to be. This is what's called safe leadership. Now, of course, you may have an objection. You may say to yourself, wait a second, I'm a competitor. I'm successful. I like to be first. You're telling me I have to be a loser. You're telling me I have to be pathetic. You're telling me to choose weakness. And the answer to that is this. Our text suggests, our Lord teaches, that there is a greater kind of weakness and, of uh, greatness and strength that is needed in order to enter into this kind of relationship. It is precisely the leader who has great inner strength who is set free to serve sacrificially. Are you that kind of a parent? Are you that kind of a supervisor? Are you that kind of a worker, employee? Are you that kind of a friend? A friend who befriends another out of need will suck the juices out of the other. A friend who befriends out of a fullness with Christ is set free to serve and to give so that the other may be built up. Inwardly weak and needy leaders use their followers for themselves. Inwardly strong and satisfied and filled up leaders don't use their followers. Rather, they are safe leaders. Now, I know some of the folks who, who work around here, including the fellow who wears the tennis shoes. And uh, my sense is that you are blessed to have leaders who understand this principle. My sense is that you are blessed to have people around here who understand that while leadership has to be accountable for results and has to be accountable for momentum and all the other things, at the same time, it is a kind of leadership that fills and that goes with the principle that Jesus is talking about, the upside-down principle of greatness. Because it's leadership that flows from a full heart. And that's the kind of leaders that we need to follow. Safe leadership is so rare in our society, isn't it? Can you think of the people that you know at work, in our society? Think of places in our society where plotting and conniving and putting yourself first and getting ahead become the key issues. 
You know, Jesus would have something to say about all that. Jesus would have something to say about all the areas in our society where the old principles of greatness play. For example, politics. Oh yeah, here's a good one. We can find some good examples here. Wheeling and dealing. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. If need be, say one thing, do another. All to win, to gain the vote. What do you think Jesus would say about that? Not so with you. No, not with you, not the people of God. Or consider, for example, the family. Now, I've talked a little bit about what a healthy family looks like. Parents who are filled up with God, who lead their children and yet do so without being needy themselves. But in the world, we see so many families where parents power up on the kids. And the parents say, do it this way. Why? Because I said so. No spiritual or biblical reason, just I said so, and I'm being powerful here, and I'm bigger than you. Parenting with boxing gloves. I mean, what does Jesus say to that? Not so with you. Not so with you, people of God. Or consider the workplace where supervisors ignore the perspectives of their employees and pursue the bottom line, even if it means destroying people in the process. What does Jesus say to that? Not so with you, people of God. Or at play. We play recklessly, and we even cheat. I like to play golf. You know how tempting it is to use a little foot wedge? You know what a foot wedge is, don't you? You just kind of, you know, kick the ball sideways. First, you have to make sure the other guys aren't watching. Then you just use your foot wedge. Why? This isn't the Masters. You know, this is just a bunch of guys playing a game in the park. Yet we do this. Why? Because we want to win. What does Jesus say to that? Not so with you, people of God. Not so with you. Or, okay, now I'm going to quit preaching, get into meddling. (laughs) What about the church? Oh, yeah. Lobbying, twisting arms, getting people to agree with my position, trying to win at all costs. What does Jesus say about that? Not so with you, people of God. No, there is a different way. There's a different kind of greatness. It's a kind of greatness that we descend into. It's the greatness of service. I long to be a part of a church where this new principle of descending into greatness is the norm, where not so with you becomes normal. And I sense that that's true here. By the way, Jesus gives gives us a powerful example of this kind of leadership. A powerful example of what it means to serve and live in this way. Do you know what the example is? Verse 28. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself is the supreme example of this new principle of greatness. He is a leader. And we are the followers. There is no question about that. And yet we can follow him with confidence because he is the ultimately safe leader. He leads sacrificially. He leads out of a full heart. He doesn't lead out of need. Now to help me understand this principle and to remember this principle, I have in my office a little visual. And uh, this is a little pot. And out of it is a towel. 
What does the towel speak of? The towel is a symbol of what Jesus took on the day that uh, he met with his disciples right before the crucifixion. And Jesus took that towel and he washed the disciples' feet as an ultimate example of the kind of greatness that we're talking about from this passage. This towel helps to remind me to descend into greatness, to give up scheming, to give up gossiping, to give up conniving, to give up finagling behind the scenes, to give up looking for perks and benefits, to give up looking for the ways in which being in a relationship with someone benefits me. And instead, we take the towel. We experience the freedom of letting go. The question is, which one will you take? Are you going to take the kind of greatness symbolized by boxing gloves, where you beat the tar out of the other person? Or do you choose the kind of greatness symbolized by the towel, which says, it's not about my need. I'm filled up with Christ, and now I'm set free, and I can love you and serve you, not from weakness, but from an incredible inner strength. Which will it be, gloves or towel? Several years ago, Muhammad Ali was, according to the story, flying on an airplane, sitting in the front seat there somewhere, and didn't have a seatbelt on. And you know, of course, that's a big no-no. So the flight attendant came along and said, excuse me, sir, but you're going to have to put your seatbelt on. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no airplane. What kind of greatness are we talking about? The kind of greatness that this great, admittedly great boxer emphasized, where greatness comes from pounding other people, whether you pound them with your fists or with your anger or with your words or with your demands. There's different kinds of pounding, you know, different kinds of pummeling. Does the greatness come from that or does your greatness come from taking up the towel? I invite you, people of God, to consider to take this Greatness of Jesus, not the greatness of the gloves, but the greatness of the towels. Which will you choose? Will it be the gloves or will it be the towel? Now, it's easy to say again in abstract. Of course, we choose the towel. But practically, what does that mean? Okay, here's a practical assignment. I would like you to see in your own life, to consider in your own life, a place where you can take this teaching of Jesus and make it real. Maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe you and God need to get connected on this point of how you're dealing with your 12-year-old who's giving you a hard time. Maybe it's at work where there's an employee who's driving you crazy. Maybe it's in your small group where there's someone who just doesn't seem to get the program. Could be a variety of places. But where is it in your life where you need to say, Lord, I take the towel. This is the place where today I take the towel. I give up the gloves. I take the towel. 
I challenge you to find that place in your life. Here's a second practical assignment I'd like to share with you. We've talked a little bit about leadership, talked a little bit about the fact that when leaders lead out of need, that's when they get out the gloves and they beat up the followers and gain some kind of pleasure from that. But when leaders lead out of fullness, those leaders can serve and give. And I just would like to suggest to you this one point, that Jesus is the greatest example of this principle. That Jesus is the one person in the world whom you can safely follow without any fear that he will try to gain his life and strength from you. No. He is the ultimately safe follower. I know that there are some people who say, follow me, and they're not safe. We're well aware of that today. But Jesus is the one person who it is safe to follow. And I would suggest to you that if you've been considering following Christ, that you've been considering giving your life to Christ, that you have ample reason to do it because he is the one person who will not let you down, the one person who will ultimately be safe. He is the person who better than anyone else has said, it's not about the gloves, it's all about the towel. And he picked up that towel and walked all the way to Calvary for you. If you would like to receive Christ this morning, we have over here a table where people would be glad to talk with you about what it means to receive into your life the leader who is absolutely safe. If, on the other hand, you have some other need for prayer, there are people who are gifted in the prayer ministry and gifted with faith, and they will be here in the front, and we invite you to come and to allow people to pray for you. And now I'd like to pray and let, uh, let us uh, leave for this week's life following the principles of Jesus and building them into our lives. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for the great privilege it is to love you and serve you. I thank you for this incredible principle of the upside-down concept of greatness and how we struggle with this. I struggle with this. I want to power up over people. I want to get my way. And yet your word tells me, give up the gloves take the towel. And I pray, Lord, that if there are some this morning who are just thinking about this principle and they know an area of their own lives where they really need to take the towel, may your spirit flood into their hearts and give them the courage, give them the moxie to step forward and to follow this new principle of greatness, to descend into greatness. Lord, this is our prayer. We ask it because we are the people of God who love you and serve you. And may we do it better this week because we have worshipped you this morning and we have sensed your presence and we have heard from your word. May this be true in our lives this week. We pray in the strong name of the risen Savior. Amen. Thank you, Woodland Hills Church. Go and be blessed.